Progress is being made in the treatment of familial dysautonomia. What's new and how close are we to finding a cure for this disease? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss what's new in the treatment of familial dysautonomia is Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. Dr. Rubin, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to your audience. So let's give them some background in this disease, familial dysautonomia. How rare is it? What causes it? And what happens to the kids that have it? Familial dysautonomia primarily affects individuals of Ashkenazic Jewish descent. It is due to a mutation in a gene known as ICAP. The children usually present with an inability to swallow or to feed or an absence of a suck. There's often respiratory congestion, poor muscle tone, and there's usually delayed developmental milestones in these individuals. In the past, diagnosis was done through an examination of the symptoms associated with familial dysautonomia and whether or not that combined with Ashkenazic Jewish descent. Now there is a genetic test which is able to determine whether or not somebody is affected with this disorder, doing a simple blood sample, sending a simple blood sample to be analyzed. So you describe some of the symptoms, but I'm not sure our audience who hasn't treated a patient like this really understands the extent to which these symptoms come up on a regular basis. Talk a little bit about the autonomic crises that these kids undergo on a regular basis. So the name really tells you what the disorder is. It's familial, which is because it runs through families and it's dysautonomia because there is a problem with the autonomic nervous system. These individuals will have difficulties with regards to regulation of blood pressure. They will have respiratory issues. They will sometimes have issues with regards to appropriate temperature control, and they do have associated with elevated blood pressures. They will have these episodic vomiting instances, which can go on for sometimes minutes, sometimes hours, and even sometimes days. And this has both a developmental component as well as a ongoing functional component, this gene defect, right? Right. So the children are born with certain defects, and there have been studies that have demonstrated that as individuals age, there continues to be a deterioration of neurological function, and actually biopsies have shown that there is actually a reduction in the number of nerves that can be detected as an individual ages. So the story of you and Dr. Anderson getting into this work around familial dysautonomia is interesting. It's also interesting... You're an Orthodox Jew working at a Jesuit institution. That right off the bat kind of an interesting story. Take us through that sort of personal interesting story that got you working on this in the first place. Well, actually, I smiled when you said that, you know, Orthodox Jew at a, at a Catholic or Jesuit institution. It's interesting that when we discovered the mutation for familial dysautonomia, the university took a lot of pride in the fact that the Catholic University of New York, which has a very high Jewish population, is been able to foster the success in finding a mutation which impacts this community. So there was actually a lot of pride here at this institution. The involvement in this project really comes from personal interaction I've had with a family that had a child and then grandchildren with familial dysautonomia. And since there was no way to test for the disorder, 
there was no way to know whether the other children who were going to get married, whether they would have spouses who were also carriers and thereby run the risk of also having children with familial dysautonomia. So that kind of encouraged us to take a look at this, and we were very successful. I had a very good group of individuals working with me, and we were able to accomplish very quickly a formidable task, and that was the identification of the mutations that cause familial dysautonomia. So I'll bet our listening audience is thinking very quickly discovered the gene. I'll bet they're thinking three years, five years, because in the world of science, that would be fairly quick. How quick was it? It was actually probably in the order of three months that it took us to find. We were very lucky in that the Human Genome Project started to be released by the NIH, and we used information in that to try to focus on the region that had been previously characterized as being associated with familial dysautonomia. And the people in the lab worked incredibly hard. Dr. Anderson was extremely dedicated. We had some undergraduate and graduate students who put in a tremendous amount of time. And I could check exactly what the dates are, but my expectation is is it took us less than 90 days to find. So in addition to finding the gene that could create this screening test, both for couples getting married and for kids that were diagnosed with the disease, knowing where this gene was led you on a whole series of discoveries that have helped these kids. Tell us about that. The major mutation that causes familial dysautonomia is located in an intron sequence, which causes for the RNA generated from this gene to be misspliced so that it's missing exonic information. It's interesting to note that there is a similar kind of mutation that causes Fanconi anemia, which also affects the Ashkenazic Jewish population. And that disorder is an extremely severe disorder causing not only anemia, but a lack of development sometimes of limbs. And these children are just extremely sick. And what we noted was that the same mutation existed in the Japanese population. And in that population, the disorder is extremely mild. Usually the individuals who carry the disease or who have the disease are usually go undiagnosed until they're in their 30s or 40s. And we wondered about the contrast that there was between the phenotype expressed by these two populations. And while the genetic background of these two populations is clearly different, we also wondered whether what it was that these individuals were consuming or eating might be regulating the expression or the splicing process in these two different populations. And so what we decided to do is to examine the impact of foods and supplements and vitamins on the splicing process that occurs with regards to the production of the functional versus non-functional ICAP transcript. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and with us is Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. So now let's talk a little bit about this idea that some of the common substances that we eat have a huge impact on whether these kids are going to express functional protein or non-functional protein. Was that a new idea I haven't heard about that before, people doing those kinds of natural substances. How did you decide to do that? The 
field of nutrigenomics, which is the ability of nutrition to impact gene expression, is something that is beginning to become more popular. When we began this, it was early in that phase. But what has become apparent is, is that what we eat does affect gene expression in our bodies. Consuming soy, which contains things like genestin, consuming green tea, which contains epigallogodecangallate, consuming a variety of different compounds will affect gene expression in individuals. And what we wondered was, could we affect gene expression in individuals with familial dysautonomia by introducing into their diet various different compounds? Now, it's interesting. Our, the selection of compounds that we made was because we had a very specific goal in mind. And that was to provide these individuals with a therapy that would be readily available to them. So while we could have screened pharmaceutical products and gone through FDA approval to get those products to be made available to this patient population, because familial dysautonomia is a fatal disorder and because the neurological deficits are progressive, we decided that we were going to look amongst things that would be readily available on the shelf for these individuals so that if we discovered something a week after we published it, it would be available to them and they could start using it. Let's talk a little bit about the science. Let's take us down to the bench now and tell us how did you look at those compounds? What did you do? Cell cultures? Do you have an animal model of this? How did we figure out that certain compounds actually did help produce functional ICAP protein? We actually have a cell culture system that we're using where we have cells from individuals with familial dysautonomia where we can quantify the amount of functional transcript that is produced as compared to non-functional transcript. And we use real-time PCR for this, which basically is a mechanism to quantify the functional versus the non-functional. So we would put a compound in on these cells, wait for a period of time, harvest the RNA produced by those cells, and then determine what percentage of the ICAP RNA contained exon 20 versus what percentage lacked exon 20. And how many of these compounds did you screen during this screening process? We have done thousands of compounds. Many of the vitamin supplement companies have been very generous when we called them and asked we want to have a small amount of materials to do for these. They would be very generous and send, and we have gotten thousands of substances that we have put through this assay. And what have you found so far? So the first discovery that we made was that the compound tocotrienol, which is a form of vitamin E, increased the amount of the functional transcript in the FD-derived cells. Analysis of what it was that the tocotrienol is doing resulted in the observation that what it is doing is it is upregulating the expression of the gene, and because the mutation allows for some functional gene product to be produced, when you upregulate expression of the gene, you get an additional amount of functional gene product. Just to give you an idea, if 10%, if you, for example, say that there are 100 molecules produced in a cell, and if 10% of them are functional, you get 10 functional molecules in a normal FD cell. If I can treat the cells with tocotrienols and increase the number from 100 molecules to 300 molecules, but still have 10% of it being functional, now I have 30 versus 10 molecules that are functional in the tocotrienol-treated 
FD-derived cells. And in these patients, the dysfunctional protein has no negative impact, but the lack of functional protein has the negative impact. Is that, that correct? That is absolutely correct. So therefore, there is no problem with increasing the amount of the non-functional. What we're benefiting here from is the ability to increase the amount of the functional. And then you discovered a second compound that you could use with the tocotrienols. What was that and how did you discover what it was doing? Again, as we move through hundreds or thousands of samples, we noticed that green tea had an ability to increase the amount of the functional ICAP transcript. And when we did our analysis on that, what we noted was that as compared to the tocotrienols, which increased the production of the gene product, what the green tea was doing was it was changing the splicing pattern so that now the cell was producing much less of the non-functional transcript and much more of the exon 20 containing functional transcript. Analysis of the green tea revealed that it was actually EGCG or epigallocatechengallate that was the molecule that was changing the splicing process and thereby increasing the amount of functional ICAP transcript. So do kids now take these two in combination during the day? So we started by introducing the tocotrienols into this patient population and the results were actually quite dramatic. Children who were really suffering from intense symptoms associated with familial dysautonomia got relief of those symptoms. And that was very gratifying. We have actually gathered data on individuals who were not taking tocotrienols and then after a period of time of taking tocotrienols and we've been able to demonstrate increased cardiovascular stability decrease in the episodes of episodic vomiting, increase in tear production. So we've been actually able to make measurable observations on the impact of the tocotrienols. The introduction of the green tea or epigallocatechengallate has taken this to the next step so that many of the other symptoms associated with familial dysautonomia, such as the lack of muscle tone, etc., have also begun to improve in this patient population. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. He was joining us to talk about treatments for familial dysautonomia. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire interview library available through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and questions at 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. And thank you for listening.